Good morning. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here at White River, and it is a joy to be here to share um, all the things that I have been studying and learning from God's Word this week in the book of Exodus. We are in the third week of our series, My People, and if you have been with us, you would know that God has been laying out promises left and right. He's been giving hope in situations where it seemed like there was no hope. He has been giving relationship, making himself known. He is Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord alone, and making that known to a certain people, saying, I want a relationship with you. Now, all of that is wonderful if God does one thing, if God is powerful enough to actually save his people. Can God actually redeem a people from Egypt, from the most powerful person in the most powerful nation? All of the things that God says hinge on the ability of God being able to deliver. And now when we use that word redeem, can Yahweh redeem? That's not a word we use very often. It's a word that... Um, Maybe we need a little refresher. Um, it means to rescue. Redeem means to get back. Redeem means to win back. So when we think about God having people, does God have a people? It means simply this, that whoever God redeems, who does he win back? Who does he rescue they would become his people, right? And that is how we know we would, or Israel would be one of his. Are we redeemed? Because not everyone is my people. Not everyone is my people. What we are reading in Exodus occurred in 1440 BC, a long, long time ago, okay? when we were reading about the family of Abraham, this people called Israel. So we're going to be looking here in Exodus. We're going to be covering all kinds of ground, seven chapters. You can start in Exodus chapter six, go there and stay on your toes. We're going to be going fast and furious through these seven chapters that show us God's redemptive power. Is he able to win back, to gather, to redeem people? And who, who are the people that get redeemed? Exodus 6, more of God's promises, his intentions. Exodus 6, 6 says, Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm, great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. This right here is the first explicit biblical reference to God's redemption, to his intention to actually redeem these people, a people. And this is the reason for the whole book of Exodus, Again, he's made so many promises, but again, it's only good if he can actually do it. So what is the plan? 
What is God's plan to redeem Israel? How is he going to go about taking this people from slavery? And what's he going to do? How does he do this? So Exodus 7, 1, we're going to go straight into this. Exodus 7, 1, the Lord said to Moses, pay close attention. I will make you seem like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Tell Aaron everything I command you and Aaron must command Pharaoh to let the people of Israel leave his country. So we need to get this straight. God's plan to redeem a people is to put two 80-year-old men. We learn this from verse seven in chapter seven, that Moses was 80 years old and he had an older brother. Aaron is the older brother. You maybe didn't know that, but Moses is the younger brother. Aaron is the older brother. He's 83 years old. And his grand plan to redeem the people of Israel is let's send the two 80-year-olds into the most powerful person in the world and just ask him. Would you let my people go? What a plan. Well, I would say Moses and Aaron seem to be up to the task after a little back and forth. We saw this last week, but they're in this season where they could kick back and relax. Isn't that when you're supposed to kind of slide into retirement? But no, God wanted them to roll up their sleeves to get into the fray of carrying out God's will on earth. And so this is totally aside, but I see it right here. There is no such thing as spiritual retirement. No matter how old you are, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, God can use you and wants to. He does right here with Moses and Aaron. So this plan doesn't sound too wonderful to me off the start. I don't know if it's going to work. It gets even more interesting. Verse three, I will make Pharaoh's heart stubborn so I can multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Even then, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. Okay. We're sending the 80-year-olds to ask, okay? And then he's going to say no. That's my plan. It's going to work. Trust me. Anyone else got any more questions about this plan to redeem the people? I do. I have a lot of questions. That's really the plan here. So Moses and Aaron go in with all the confidence. Okay, Lord, we're going to do it. We're going to ask. He's going to say no but they still have to wonder, how does this all work? And you've heard the story. You've seen the story. Signs, wonders, plagues, all the time. Nine of them, one after the other. Let my people go. No. Let my people go. No. Pharaoh says, make it all stop and I'll let them go okay, God, make it stop. He makes it stop. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and says, no, there's no redemption. So it begs a question as I'm reading Exodus 6 through 13, why all these plagues? 
What's going on here with all these plagues, these famous plagues? We, we know what they are. It seems a little crazy because I know the chaos. I'm sure you do. I'm not alone in this. The chaos of a little creature running free in your home. Does anybody else know that? Where there are grown adults I'm sure no one in this room has ever jumped on a chair or screamed at the top of their lungs from a little spider or a little mouse. Maybe some of you, if you're honest, gentlemen, I know it's scary. Well, one time we were on vacation in my home. Um, We went to Tennessee. We got an Airbnb. We're in the middle of our vacation. And it was just a little snake in the living room. It wasn't a big deal. Everyone lost their mind. And of course, dad has to say what every reasonable dad would say. There aren't any more. I know this. I didn't know that. But you have to say that or else the vacation is over, right? Can you imagine all of this? The shrieks from every home and every woman and child for all of Egypt was the purpose of these plagues just to terrify everybody. Was it just to annoy Pharaoh? Just kind of poke him and be like, this is pretty interesting, right, Pharaoh? This is really annoying. Frogs everywhere. Locusts in your hair. Locusts in your closet. Locusts everywhere. Is that really what is going on here? I don't think so. That may be true, but what God was doing is way more than that. He was going after and saying something very specific that Egypt had gods that they worshiped, deities that they looked to for hope and security and prosperity. And what God was doing in these plagues was I am in control of all of life. James Boyce said this, there were 80 major deities in Egypt. All of them were clustered around three natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four were against the gods of the land. The final four were against the gods of the sky. God was saying over and over And over and over again, I am the Lord. There is no other. In fact, that is exactly what God said over and over and over again. Follow with me, Exodus 6, 7. He said, then you will know I am the Lord your God. 7, 5. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. 7, 17. I will show you that I am the Lord. 8, 10. Then you will know that there is no other like the Lord our God. 8, 22. Then you will know that I am the Lord and I am present even in the heart of your land. 9, 14. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 9.16, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. 9.29, then the thunder and hail will stop and you will know that the earth belongs to the Lord. 10.2, so you will know that I am the Lord. 11.9, I will do even more mighty miracles in the land of Egypt. You're reading this story. 
We are living through this in real time. God is saying something over and over and over again. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no other God. They don't exist. It is false. It is fake. You do not put your trust in them. You put your trust in the Lord alone. They have no power. They have no authority. God is the one who is in control. He's the one who rules all these aspects of life, not these. So it is May tomorrow. And some of you are getting excited. You're like, it's May in Indianapolis. That means the Indy 500. There's all kinds of stuff coming on. We love the festival. We love the practices and we love the race. Many of you, maybe your casual race fans or aren't race fans at all, you do not know the name Bill Vukovic. He's an old time racer. He won the 1953 and the 1954 Indy 500. Some good trivia for you. He won back-to-back races. He was leading the 1955 Indy 500 by 17 seconds. As he was coming along cars to pass them at the height of his ability, when he was mastering and in control of that race car, more than any other person on the face of the earth, he lost control of his car. And in one of the most tragic accidents in the history of the Indy 500, he lost his life. It's terribly sad, unbelievably sad. When they investigated this accident, what they found out was, although Bill was probably the greatest racer in that moment on the face of the planet, he could control everything on that racetrack. He was not in control of the 10 cent cotter pin that failed, that broke, that led a chain reaction to him losing control of his car. You see, I tell you that story because if God is not in control of every minute, every moment, every molecule in the universe, he would not be able to guarantee his promises would come true. How would you know that a 10 cent pin couldn't wreck God's plans? How would you know a tiny fly, a little gnat, a small locust couldn't ruin God's plans? But God is in control. He's in control of all of it. He is the Lord. He showed Pharaoh. He showed all of Egypt. He showed all of Israel. He showed all the earth. He is the Lord. That is what he is doing. Yet Pharaoh did not listen. Pharaoh did not listen. Exodus 7, 13, and many other times, it tells us that he refused to listen. And he wasn't just failing to listen to Moses. He was failing to listen to God. And over and over and over again, in these seven chapters, we see Pharaoh's heart described as hard. 
Pharaoh's heart became hard and he refused to obey what God wanted to do because what God wanted to do was to redeem and to free his people. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he said no. Even when we think, how could you say no? Just let him go. Just let him go, Pharaoh. I don't understand. Why would your heart be so hard? Well, it raises a very important question when we read this section of scripture that we have to ask, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Why was it like that? Because it matters. Because the answer to this question shows us who's really responsible for these plagues. Because if Pharaoh's heart was soft and he saw the Nile River turn to blood and he went, what? You guys get out of here. I don't want any part of this. Please go now. Wouldn't the people of God have been redeemed in that moment? Yes. So this is a difficult question. And here is what we see three times. Pharaoh's heart is uh, listed as becoming hard. His heart became hard. Three more times, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then four times, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is pretty complicated. How do we understand this? Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart. How do we understand it? Well, I think the easiest way to understand this is that they're both responsible. Pharaoh is responsible and the Lord is responsible. They're both responsible for what is taking place because God's desire was to display his mighty power across the face of the earth so that for all of time, even to today, we would say, I know he's the Lord. That's what God was trying to do. And Pharaoh was doing what he was in his best interest. He was saying, I trust in these gods. I trust in my power. And so God said, fine. And that's what it means to harden your heart against God. That's what it means to sin. That's what sin looks like is you say, no, I'm gonna do it my way. I'm gonna follow what I wanna follow. I'm gonna follow who I wanna follow. And God says, okay, you can follow those gods Let's see where that goes. And so the hardening of Pharaoh's heart defies reason. Many of us were like, well, if that was me, I would just let him go. But that's not how sin works. When you say no to God, it gets a little harder. And you start making decisions that maybe don't make sense to the people around you that are using logic and are a little more objective And then it just kind of spirals out of control and it gets harder and harder and harder. It builds and builds and builds. It compounds until you're completely not rational and you're completely broken. What we read here, we have to take seriously. As hard as it is to understand what the scripture is teaching us, both things are true. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. And they're both responsible for this. And this is in line with what the Bible teaches throughout all the scriptures. You don't ask me how this is true. I don't know how this is true, but God gives agency. God gives free will and choice to people. Even Pharaoh, he chose to harden his heart the first time. I think that's important. We see that. The first time Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but then at the same time, God is the author of 
history, making sure his will is done on the earth. So we have God intervening, but people still having choice all at the same time. I don't understand it, but this is the case that's being presented in Exodus. We make choices. We're free to make them. We're free to obey and disobey God, yet God's will be done. God makes it happen. Somehow, it's unbelievable. It's mysterious, but it is clear that God's name is gonna be put on display for all to see, no matter what our choices, no matter what Pharaoh's choices we're gonna be. And this is why the plagues came, to dismantle that false belief that Pharaoh had. It's okay for Israel to believe what they wanna believe. You can have a God named Yahweh, fine. Pharaoh was really a modern man. Just don't impose those beliefs on me, Pharaoh basically was saying. But that was not the point because that's not an option. God is the only reality. God is the only choice. God is the only hope for all mankind, the Egyptians and the Hebrews and everyone else to the ends of the earth. And so when the first nine plagues did not lead to redemption, we may be asking ourselves, when is God actually going to deliver on these plans once and for all? And we get to Exodus chapter 12. And we read this. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, go pick out a lamb or a young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin. Take a bundle of hyssop branches. Brush the hyssop branches across the top and the sides of your door frames on your house. And no one may go out through the door until morning for the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when the but when he sees the blood on the top and the sides of the door frames, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit the death angel to enter your house and to strike you down. Now, given everything that you know up to this point, if you put yourself in the shoes of somebody right there in that moment who has a home, maybe a father, is there a possibility that you would reject God's offer of redemption? Would you reject God's offer of freedom? Is that even possible? So as a kid, hearing the story about Passover, thinking about the plagues and this 10th one and knowing what we know about the story, I kind of assumed for the longest time that there was really a simple story. You've got one kind of Hebrew family, probably Moses' best friend, not Aaron, just his neighbor, you know. He lived next to him in the land of Goshen and, and he 
just loved hearing when Moses talked and he, he got the instructions and he drained the blood and he dipped the hyssop branch and he was on it. He was ready to trust in Yahweh. He trusted Yahweh. He's painting his door. He puts his kids to bed with all the confidence in the world that God is gonna work, that God is gonna save them and they are gonna be free. That's what I thought, right? That isn't every Israelite, that's what they did, right? They just whoop, painted the doorway. They were trusting in Yahweh. But as I started thinking about it this week, there's no way that that's true. There's so many different people who had homes in Egypt that night. Think about the Egyptian father who has seen all of these signs and wonders. His trust in his gods, his trust in his king, Pharaoh, his trust in his nation, Egypt, is starting to crumble. Should I really trust? You know, I've heard this Moses guy. I, I've heard about this Yahweh God, and, and, and I don't know. Like, I wonder, is what I put my trust in really what I should be? I don't know what's coming next, but, but I'm really curious about this Yahweh. I'm going to go to bed one more night and see what happens. Maybe you have another gentleman in the land of Goshen with the people of Israel. He's maybe not as confident as Moses' best friend. He's just some other guy. He, he lives way down the street and, and he's heard all these things. He's seen all these things, but he knows what the implications are if he dips his branches in this blood and, and he's, he hesitates. Because he knows if, if I paint my doorway and the firstborn children of Egypt are killed, I know Pharaoh is going to come through our land and wipe us out. He's going to be so angry. We're all dead. I might as well just be writing traitor on my doorposts. Do I really want to do that? I mean, I know God is powerful. I've seen all these things, but, but I don't know. But it's not worth losing my only son. So Lord, I'm painting my doors. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm doing it, but I am trusting in the blood of the lamb. All the trust that I have, I'm giving it to you, God. I, I, he, I imagine this man can't even go to sleep that night. He, he goes into the bedroom of his oldest son and he is just hugging his son. His eyes are open. He is worried to death. I don't know what's going to happen. What happened? Who was redeemed? Every single family that trusted in the blood of the lamb. I want you to hear this. Every single family, this family, this family, this family, any in between, they were making a statement that night over who they trusted, what they believed based on what was on their door frames. Everyone was making a statement not just the Hebrews, not just the ones with blood on their door frames, that through the plagues, God was saying to everyone, the Egyptians, the Hebrews, everyone in all the earth, the only way to become my people is to trust in the blood of the lamb. 
That is what God wanted to say through the Exodus. That yes, the Israelites were enslaved physically, brutal physical slavery, and he wanted to redeem them. But what I realized is that everybody, even the Egyptians, were enslaved by false ideas, by false religion, by sin. And God said, I am here to redeem everyone in the whole world through the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that amazing that this is the offer that was there, that the blood of the Lamb could cover your home and cover your heart? And what I love more than anything is that God didn't go inside each home and inspect and say, you had some doubts over here. No, he didn't go and inspect the character of every single individual in every single home. He only passed over and said, are you covered by the blood? Are you good enough? Are you not? Not a question. Are you covered by the blood of the lamb? Whoever God redeems becomes his people. Whoever that is, whatever posture you have when you put your trust in him, you are one of his Some of you may be wondering, were there any Egyptians who trusted in Yahweh? I wonder that. And I don't know if any Egyptians painted their doorposts, but I do know that there were many Egyptians who started to place their trust in him and joined the people and eventually were putting their trust in the blood of the lamb. Exodus 12, 37, this is absolutely fascinating. That night, the people of Israel left Ramses, started for Succoth. There were about 600,000 men, plus all the women and children. A rabble, the NLT says, of non-Israelites went with them. I had to look that up. I don't use that word. What is a rabble of non-Israelites? Well, it just means a mob, a large group of people. Some translations say a mixed multitude of people went with the Israelites. What I want you to see from way back in Exodus, all the way to today. God says, you're all welcome to put your trust in the blood of the lamb. It's free offering. He's willing to redeem anyone and whoever God redeems becomes his people. And because of this amazing act, Exodus 13, 3, Moses said to the people, this is a day to remember forever. The day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today, the Lord brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. Remember this act forever. What we know, this act, as much as it was about the Israelites and the Egyptians, We know this act was intentional by God pointing to the person of Jesus. We know this. 
As soon as Jesus appeared on the scene and people knew who he was, John in John chapter one looked at Jesus and said, look, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That on Passover weekend, Jesus went to the cross. He died for our sins so that you and I could paint the doorposts of our hearts with the blood of Jesus, that we could trust in Jesus with our life forever and make a declaration that he has freed us from slavery to sin, that he is about freedom and he uses his son Jesus to deliver all people just that you put your trust in him. And so it's only appropriate today that we take the Lord's Supper, something that Jesus said, this is something I want you to remember forever. We can never forget the Passover and what it points to. It points to Jesus, the one who takes away the sins of the world. He can take away your sins if you say, I trust you doesn't matter if you were eager and you said, I will trust you no matter where you go, Lord. It doesn't matter if you're over here and you're like, I've got some doubts. As long as you trust in the blood, he's not gonna check your character. He's not gonna check all of your past. He's not gonna check how good you are if you're qualified to join in with the people of God. He's only going to check, are you covered by the blood? Amen.